Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. The words healthcare data carry many associations. From frustrations around data interoperability, outrage about the value and monetization of healthcare data, anger due to poor access to medical records by patients, and we could go on. In the next few episodes, you will hear a little bit more about healthcare data management in the US healthcare system. We're starting with a discussion recorded at Health 2022, where Arif Natu, CEO of Komodo Health, described how is the company planning to capture and de-identify every encounter patients have within the U.S. healthcare system. Komodo Health is currently tracking individual encounters with the healthcare system for over 330 million patients. Companies such as Pfizer, Applied VR, Turquoise Health, Janssen and others use Komodo's de-identified patient-level data and insights to make decisions around drug development, discovery, clinical trials, clinical research and innovation. Before we dive in, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. In the next few weeks, you will hear why is Palantir Foundry betting on open data standards in healthcare, what a few healthcare data management vendors think about the current state of interoperability and data governance, and more. Also, subscribe to our newsletter fodh.substack.com that's fodh.substack.com and you can find the link in the show notes where I will publish a summary of this healthcare data series. Now let's dive in. Arif, we're going to look at the health data management landscape in the U.S. and how Komodo Health is basically analyzing the data and helping just get meaningful insight out of that data. Just as an introductory question, how would you describe the current state of data management in the U.S. healthcare? Okay, fantastic. Tiasha, it's nice to meet you and uh, spend a little time on this subject. In the U.S. system, we have privatized providers. So each provider is out for themselves and we have private payers and a government payer. But the implication of that is that every single actor in the healthcare system only sees the patient for the amount of time that the patient is with that either payer or provider massively fragmented. And so data itself is also equally fragmented. It sits on so many different systems None of it really is connected and talks to each other. And this is in contrast with a lot of public sector systems across Europe where the government will have visibility into 80, 90% of the population in the U.S. We see that in the Medicare side of the world, but the Medicaid side of the world, for example, each of the states have visibility. And for all the private insurers, only the insurer has visibility. And so that's led to this incredibly fragmented system. How does Komodo Health combine the data? How does the data get 
into your system and perhaps you can explain how is data processed before it reaches you and how it's processed when it reaches you. So how do you clean the data so you can mine it? Yeah. Komodo Health is a software company about eight years old, and we exist to solve this problem of data being stuck in so many different silos. And then more importantly, we once we do that work, we create software applications that help companies and nonprofits take advantage of those insights. I'll start with the question you had asked, which is how do we really bring that data together that's all sitting in these different silos? Now, in the US, we have a system called HIPAA which allows companies to de-identify data, depersonalize it. So we keep privacy in mind. And through that process, allow us to look at populations at scale. The good thing about that is it creates the ability for us to de-identify and study population trends. The challenge, though, is that the same patient may show up in one provider system and then may have a, a telehealth visit in another system Maybe they get their lab work done in yet another system. And so that individual is now in three different systems. So to basically get those systems to talk nicely to each other, we go through a process of de-identifying that identity and assigning it a, an encrypted token. And that encrypted token, when they exist in two or three other systems, can be securely linked to an individual that says, I don't know who this is. It's not RFNetu, this is this token in three different systems, but they all represent the same individual. And in that way, we can start to connect these histories. So we spend a lot of time doing this across the system. We de-identify each of these different systems. We then link it together. And then the big challenge is in getting the different data sets to talk to each other. They all use slightly different terminology. They use slightly different schemas. And in that process, we have to normalize and reduce it to something that's actually usable. And so this is the process by which we build our healthcare map. We aggregate this across many different sources in the U.S., and we use that as a foundation to perform analysis and application development. I want to dive into that a little bit deeper because there's a general consensus that one of the biggest challenges in healthcare globally, actually, is the difficulty of extracting data from the electronic medical records. So like the High Tech Act was established to connect everyone, but then data blocking happened with the vendors to just prevent the loss of their customers. So it's still very difficult to get that data out of the system. So how do you do it? How do you approach that issue? Great question. In the U.S., we have a EDI transaction system that allows for healthcare payments to occur. And these EDI transactions, like the 837 is a submission of a medical claim and the 835 is a remittance of it. Those transactions happen to be really well coded in the U.S. compared to other systems around the world. And the reason is because reimbursement is driven by that. So if you're a provider and you want to get paid for that patient, you're going to really accurately code that patient with their diseases, their symptomology. This is not true of claims in many other countries, but the U.S. system has created a very relatively, I'd say, high fidelity view of the healthcare transaction. Um, and so that data is actually sitting in systems where it's very easy to grab that. So we start with that data format because it's a transaction between insurer and provider. It has relevant information on the patient. It has information on the provider that provided service. 
and it can be connected to a lot of demographics on the patient so we can really understand disease burden. Then the question is, okay, what about all the clinical systems, the EHRs that are capturing much more rich symptomology? What about the lab, like the lab data that the outcomes of that? And what we've learned is that the EHR is a really poor technology and I would say antiquated technology system that was designed for information capture, but not really designed for the performing analysis. And many of the different pieces that are in the EHR are now actually available directly from the source. For example, it's easier for us to get a lab result from the lab itself. It's easier for us to get symptoms from a device that's connected to essentially the symptom checker or, for example, to a blood pressure or, or vitals. All of that information, as we move to a model where sensors and IoT is the dominant model, information doesn't necessarily need to go to the EHR to then be aggregated. It can start with the actual device or the lab that's actually doing the work. And so this is a huge change and it's, it's freeing essentially data from the EHR and for us, we find it a lot easier to actually go to all of these different endpoints, go to the sensors, go to the labs, get the data directly and skip the EHR. Why? For all the reasons you mentioned, information blocking, they feel like it's their data and it's just not. And I think that's really where we've had the most success building the map. I must say that from the European perspective, I find it quite fascinating that you can do what you do, you know, because even if data is de-identified, it's basically still the patient's data and oftentimes patients don't really have a say that in this, that their data is basically used for commercialization. In Europe, you do have organizations that would have data pools of patients that would be there for research, but it's usually managed by very specific, not necessarily national, but independent structures, uh, but you're a private company. So I'm really wondering... What are you not allowed to do with the data? What are the limits that you have? The really beautiful thing about de-identification regimes is that they provide the privacy and security for the individual, but they allow public health research to be conducted at scale. And this is one of the very nice examples of where the U.S. healthcare system, for all its flaws, has actually created this pathway to gain public health benefit from studying de-identified or depersonalized data. And what where the limits are of that is that it cannot then be re-identified. And it's really important to keep that in mind because as an individual, if I say, okay, my data is being used on a de-identified basis, I can't, I don't have control of it. I at least should never be negatively impacted from that, from that action. And so the bright line is nothing can re-identify the patient. So what does that mean for companies like us and anyone else doing de-identified analytics? You invest in privacy and security and ensuring that de-identified data stays de-identified you also are really great at tracking use cases and identifying and showing and proving that it's having a benefit on patients. So we spend a lot of time thinking about the public health consequences of that. When we see individual practices that are not performing standard of care, we see patients dying at a higher rate. That's really important. And we know there's a huge public health benefit from it. That doesn't even require us to identify the patients. So I think patients can rest assured that they're not being targeted, they're not being used, but that when data is passing through systems that it can actually be used in a depersonalized way to improve public health, I think we can agree that's a good thing for society. If we look at some of the use cases that you've, you did so far, so I'm just going to mention too, um, Reuters recently did uh, some research about the changes in just the transgender population in, among the youth. 
So basically you did an analysis on 330 million. Your database has 330 million yes. Americans. That's like the whole That's US. the whole population, yes. <laughs> okay, congratulations. Um, but so the analysis that I'm talking about found that 120,000 children between ages 6 and 17 were diagnosed with gender dysphoria in the five years to the end of 2021. And then more than 42,000 of those children were diagnosed just last year. So that's 70% more compared to 2020. And yeah, I actually just wanted to ask you, what are some of the interesting insights? And maybe you can give us some of the use cases that you did for the clients that you have. They include Pfizer, Janssen, Applied VR. That study is a great example of where looking at population trends can really impact policymakers, can really help us understand unmet need of patients. And um, just even recognizing the notion of what gender dysphoria means, how gender dysphoria has evolved and it is more recognized as a condition now than it was several years ago. The impact of that is you have providers that are more conscious of it. You have patients that are more conscious of that. And we have words to describe what somebody feels when they're, they're not the gender that they were assigned at birth. And I think that is an illustration of the type of public health discussions you can have. It doesn't matter what you believe politically, but that we can actually have a conversation around what we observe happening out there. We do this very similar research across a variety of problems. We were really focused on healthcare disparities. In the U.S., especially, we see certain populations, Black populations, Hispanic and Latino populations that, that are receiving care later than their white counterparts were able to shine a light on that. That's really important because policymakers need to understand where those unmet needs are and address. Similarly, many of our pharmaceutical clients, the ones that you mentioned, or device clients, are really then thinking about how they build clinical trials that actually represent the populations that they study. Now, in the U.S. at least, we find that white patients are enrolled in clinical trials at a much higher rate than a lot of more diverse minority populations. And the FDA has set out to say, hey, trials need to reflect the population. The population is this composition and your drug is going to be used by the whole population then you need to study that population that represents what your country represents in the U.S. Is, has that diversity. And so for us, being able to identify where underrepresented populations are, helping the company then think, oh, if we were to bring these sites into our clinical trial, we would potentially increase the diversity. Can we predict how much that would increase the diversity of trial? Then when they go out and do it, they can track, are they actually increasing the diversity of that study? When that happens, they end up with a more diverse study, they end up with better evidence, what they submit to the FDA, and they end up with evidence that's more representative of the population. Very simple example of how we can data on healthcare disparities to actually impact the way that trial recruiting is done. What, how is your business model um, designed? So do you have different approaches for different clients? Yeah, so we license our platform like any application, any software application, and they basically license that for a given cohort of patients that reflects what they're looking at. And we sell multiple different applications to them. So oftentimes they'll use maybe a, a no-code solution like Prism that'll help them really model disease burden of a population. 
then they may want to build their own algorithms and they'll use Sentinel to do that. Each software experience is designed for a certain user in mind and a certain way to operate. We also, though, work with academic institutions, nonprofits, and we charge a dramatically reduced rate. In fact, bring it down to about cost so that they can actually perform research that's used for publication as well as for FDA submissions. An opportunity for us to be part of the national dialogue, at least in the U.S., on how data can be used to transform healthcare. Where do you see the future growth and just a business development of what you're doing? Yeah, for Komodo, we're still a very, we may be eight years old, but we're still much younger uh, than many of the healthcare institutions in the U.S. And I think what uh, the, the beautiful opportunity is that we're at this perfect confluence of time where we see a massive expansion of healthcare data, and yet systems and processes are not really built to address it. And so we're at the sea change where we're just ushering this new era of using data in a more progressive way, in a way that actually can improve patient outcomes. And I think our business is to continue to grow, continue to just share more and continue to see the benefits play out in public discourse, but as well, helping our customers get more conscious of using data to, to better improve patient outcomes. And so we're spending and investing a lot more time to grow our network of payers, providers, life sciences companies that are all on the Komodo platform. What's your expectation about data management or just your work in 2023 and beyond? Like, where do you see that healthcare data management is going in the U.S.? Yeah, so the, the, this year in particular, coming up in 23, we're seeing so many companies that have now adopted a more progressive position on data where they want to actually link it with other data in a de-identified way they want to find these areas of massive unmet need in their populations. And our kind of, what I observe happening is that the number of patients with linkable data being made available is exploding. I think that's going to continue. I then think that uh, the ability for systems to actually take those insights and act on that is also expanding. And we're seeing a lot of our customers actually taking these insights and bringing them to the FDA. We're seeing them take that and bring that to their the, the field and help them actually make better decisions. Um, and so that's been a huge trend. And then finally, with the advancement in both sensors as well as uh, diagnostics, we're seeing the next generation of applications of therapeutics and diagnostics that are, are all cloud native devices, meaning that they're, the device itself is fully cloud connected, digital therapeutics. And we're seeing an explosion of those types of formats by which information on patients is being collected and now linked to more traditional systems can help reduce disease burden and improve outcomes. So Lots of really exciting innovation happening on that front, but it's what we're seeing play out in the market in the next year. I find it interesting that you basically take data from different systems, different sources, and while it's de-identified, you can still pinpoint like the same patient from different systems. So how do you see the challenge and the future of the interoperability challenge in the U.S.? I'm sure that many patients have a hard time understanding, like, why can you do this and why, like, the providers can't yeah. just exchange the data if you can do it? Yeah, no, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. We've, through the 21st Century Cures Act and through the new data sharing rules in the U.S., um, providers are now being afforded the opportunity to do that themselves. Uh, the challenge for all of them is that the, the systems that they connect with also have to play nice. And we would say that the information they're receiving is also not complete. And the way we know this is because we can look at this from the government, from looking at Medicare data, which traces all the journey of that patient while they're on Medicare. We see that even 
what providers are receiving through these portals is not a complete view of the patient. And that's just, that's the problem right now is that we're in a world where the information blocking is getting better, the providers are getting more access, but they're just nowhere near having full visibility into these patients. And so that's why the de-identified world that I described, where we depersonalize everything and we link it, still offers the best fidelity of looking at complete histories. And we think that's going to be there for a while. A lot of provider systems are going to get more access to information on patients, but it's not necessarily true that they'll be able to get the insights that they're expecting. So we, we see that playing out over the next couple of years, but it's a, it's a really interesting time and why that de-identified world needs to continue to exist. We have enough time for one more question. So I mentioned earlier that your database has basically the whole U.S. population. Can you maybe explain that a little bit further? Because you also mentioned that you're, you're working on your growth. You want to work with more providers, but it's a little bit hard to understand. Yeah, like, if I have everything. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. What's amazing about healthcare is that when we say we have something on a patient, I may have one observation of that patient, the one time they use this specific provider. But what's amazing is that patients in, in the U.S. were seeing this massive drive where patients are really dictating their care, and they may be using five or six different providers and different systems and networks. And so just because I have one observation of the patient doesn't mean I have all the observations of the patient. So we talk about this concept of depth. So breadth is just, okay, I have this patient represented in my system. The depth, though, is that I have 100% visibility into their healthcare life. We are nowhere near that. So right. while we have a phenomenal representation of some patient, like a little bit on every patient de-identified. What we don't have is we don't have a guarantee of depth. And that's a journey over many years to build, to collect, to link, and then to have systems that know how to understand the sampling bias in that. And so that's why when I say that the journey is just beginning, so early in the experience of actually getting to completion, even if we have some representation, we just don't know if we have all and the quest is to get everything. So in your assessment, what's the percentage of healthcare providers, insurers, and system that's involved in healthcare data do you think that you already have in your database or in your network? Yeah, probably seeing robust, robustly about at least 50 to 60% of everything that's happening in the U.S., which is a, a phenomenal lot. sample. Uh, it's a phenomenal sample. But again, like it's this is in one type of information, which is the healthcare transactions that a patient's going through. I don't see that much lab results. I don't see that much on the symptoms that may be tracked in NEHR. When we talk about percentages, it's like very difficult to know what the true denominator is. And so we always tell people like, hey, we've got about half the country in terms of visibility of some aspect of their healthcare, but that other 50% is locked into a lot of different systems that we need to continue to get to. And then the last dimension that we didn't really talk a lot about, but I think it's really important is the timeliness. If we're trying to predict an outcome in a patient where a decision has to be made in the next one to two weeks. I need to see what's happening almost real time. I need to see what happens yesterday. And some observations we get are two to three months old and others are observations from the prior day. Now imagine that you have to account for that difference in sampling. You also have to be able to then make sense of what you're seeing and recognize that over time you want to get faster and faster to observation. So our North Star is we want to see every de-identified activity for every patient that happened yesterday. And so that is a long ways away, but the beautiful thing is that we have a process and a way of actually starting to move towards that goal, but we believe that's required to truly fundamentally reshape U.S. healthcare. 
You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically, and also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com, that's fodh.substack.com, and see what we covered in the last month. Stay tuned.